Of course, no one in the district attorney's office believed a word that came out of Holmes's mouth, so the investigation to find the children continued in earnest. It was going to be like finding a needle in a haystack, but they were determined. At the same time, the news of the missing sisters, Anna and Minnie Williams, raised its head. These sisters had last been seen with Holmes, owned land in Fort Worth, Texas, and had disappeared without a trace. Even more of a coincidence was that the land had been conveyed to Benton T. Lyman, an alias of Benjamin F. Peitzel. They also discovered that the land was now in the hands and control of Holmes. Holmes was questioned about the sisters, and according to Geyer's book, quote, Holmes admitted his intimacy with these women and told a startling story of the Holmes's type, describing his return one night to the home of the Williams sisters, of his discovery that many in a moment of rage had killed Nettie and how he had shielded the former by taking Nettie's body out on the lake at Chicago and quietly sinking it. The police weren't sure. They didn't believe Holmes's story, but they weren't sure he had murdered them either. Maybe the children were with Minnie, after all. It was time to dig deeper. The detectives needed to go back through all the evidence for new leads. This is what they found. When Holmes was arrested, he was in possession of a tin box containing title and other papers and private letters. The tin also contained 10 to 12 letters from Alice and Nettie written to their mother and their grandparents from Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and Detroit. They were never posted. Holmes's most recent wife, Georgina Yoke, had also handed in a bunch of keys she had found in the trunk of her car. Why hadn't the letters been posted? What were the keys for? On the evening of June 26, 1895, full of hope and courage, Detective Geyer started on his journey. Geyer left Philadelphia and headed for Cincinnati. He carried with him a number of photographs showing Holmes, Peitzel, the children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard, Carrie Peitzel, Desi and the baby, Carrie Peitzel's trunk, which Holmes had borrowed from her in Detroit, the missing trunk that belonged to the children, and a trunk of belongings that belonged to Miss Howard. Knowing that Holmes left St. Louis on September 28th with the children, Geyer and the local police searched local hotels for bookings. Hitting the jackpot, at a cheap hotel called 164.5 Central Avenue, where Alex E. Cook and three children had checked in. The owner said they couldn't be positive that this was Holmes and the children, but that the people in the photographs seemed familiar. Geyer was sure that this was them. When living in Burlington, Holmes had given Carrie Peitzel the alias Miss A.E. Cook. The search continued on September 29th, an A.E. Cook and three children checked into the Hotel Bristol. The clerk identified all four of them from the photograph shown. Geyer was on the right track. The police traced down a rental home, number 305 Poplar Street, rented to Mr. A.C. Hayes, though the agent said they were there for only two days. When visiting the area, Geyer spoke to the next-door neighbor. Luckily, she was a certain type who liked nothing more than to gossip about the goings-on. She said on the morning of September 29th, 
a furniture wagon had arrived. A man and a young boy got out. A large iron cylinder stove was taken into the house, but that was all. Then on September 30th, her doorbell rang, and there was Holmes. He told her that he had changed his mind, and she could have the stove. Next stop for Geyer was Indianapolis, and after a lot of searching, he found the booking at the Hotel English under the name Cannons, the children's grandparents' name. The clerk positively identified Holmes and the children. Geyer went from hotel to hotel, lodging house to lodging house, real estate agent to real estate agent, painstakingly creating a trail of places that Holmes had stayed with the children. And then on Monday, July 15th, in Toronto, Geyer and the local police found themselves outside number 16, St. Vincent, a small two-story cottage standing a couple of meters back from the sidewalk with a lawn front yard and a small veranda leading to the front door. They paused and decided to call on the elderly neighbor at number 18 first. Thomas Rives had called the Toronto Police Department. Thomas Rives had said they met Holmes and that Holmes was renting it for his widowed sister, who was at Hamilton, Ontario, and that he was expecting her to be there for a few days. While talking, Rives mentioned that Holmes had asked to borrow a spade while he was there. He said it was to, quote, arrange a place in his cellar for his sister to put potatoes in. He said that they arrived with only an old bed frame, a mattress, and a large trunk, the trunk being removed from the house when they moved out just a few days later. Geyer and the local police looked at each other. This was it. They were all sure they were in the right place. It was time to speak to the owner, Miss Nudell. They arrived at her house, showing her the photographs of Holmes, Alice, and Nellie. Miss Nudell and her daughter both recognized them straight away and confirmed the widowed sister's story that Rives had told. They couldn't wait any longer. Returning to 16 St. Vincent Street, they borrowed Rives' spade and rang the doorbell. The door opened, cautiously by Miss Armburst, the current tenant. She let them through into the kitchen, lifted a large oil cloth from the floor, and there, in the center of the room, was a small trap door less than a meter square. The cellar was cramped, tiny, and dark, very, very dark. Even with lamps, the corners remained dark, and detectives wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. They pushed the spade into the earth, not exactly sure what they were looking for, but hoping that if there was anything there, it would feel different. The earth was hard and compacted. They were looking for a change in consistency. They reached the southwest corner. There was a soft spot. The spade went in easy. They pushed further, and then, when they got down about 30 centimeters, a putrid stench started to fill the room. This was it. They had found the right spot. This is what Geyer writes. Our coats were thrown off, and with renewed confidence, we continued our digging. The deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became, and when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered 
what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Throwing some dirt in the hole to keep down the stench as much as possible, we left the cellar and went into the kitchen. Geyer, the local police, and the undertaker returned to the house and exhumed the bodies of Alice and Nellie Peitzel. Geyer describes the scene in his book. Alice was found lying on her side with her hand to the west. Nellie was found lying on her face with her hand to the south, her plaited hair hanging neatly down her back. While the girls were buried naked, the new tenants confirmed that she had found fragments of clothes and children's shoes around the fire when she moved in, but thought nothing of it. One of the owner's children had also found a small wooden egg toy, which was on Geyer's list of missing items. The news that Alice and Nellie had been murdered and buried in the cellar was devastating. But what had happened to little Howard? Geyer and the Philadelphia Police Department were determined to find out. They had come too far now to give up the search. Some two months after Geyer's investigation began, the search took him to Irvington, Indianapolis, where he tracked down a Dr. Thompson, who confirmed that he had rented a house to Holmes, and that he had arrived with a tiny boy. It was time to search the house, a small one, and a half-story cottage set back a little off the road in the eastern part of the town. With no immediate neighbors set back between a common and a small grove of trees, the house was perfectly secluded. In Geyer's own words, on entering the house, we searched the cellar first. I found it divided into two apartments, the rear having a cement floor and evidently intended for a washroom, and the front having a clay floor but as hard as flint. It was quite evident that there had been no disturbance of the floor in the cellar, and so we decided to make a search on the outside. To the right wing of the house is attached a small piazza with open latticework under the floor. In looking through this latticework, I discovered the broken remains of a trunk. It took but a moment to remove the steps leading to the piazza floor, and crawling under, I brought out what proved to be a strong piece of evidence against the distinguished criminal who was sitting in his cell in the Philadelphia County Prison and wondering how near I had set my feet on his tracks. When I brought out the piece of trunk, I discovered that a strip of the blue calico had been pasted along the side seam and evidently intended to repair and cover it. They continued their search, but other than some blood on the large stove that was in an old barn, they found nothing. It had been a long day, and Geyer decided to retire for the evening. Geyer needed to make sure that this trunk belonged to the Peitzel children, so he sent their mother Carrie the following telegram. Did missing trunk have a strip of blue calico, white figure over seam on the bottom? He received the following reply. Yes, missing trunk had a strip of blue calico white figure on the bottom. The pieces of the puzzle were slowly joining up. Geyer felt that he was really close to finding out the truth and was already making plans for tomorrow. He would go back to the property and thoroughly search the house on the grounds. And just as he was thinking this, he received the final clue 
that he needed to solve this mystery. A telephone call where he learned this. After he left the house to send the telegram, Dr. Thompson, the owner of the property, Dr. Barnhill, his business partner, and two young boys continued to search the house. The children decided to play detective in the part of the cellar with the cement floor. In this area, there was a chimney leading right up to the roof, and inside the chimney was a pipe hole. One of the boys couldn't resist sticking his arm up there as he pulled out a handful of ashes and some pieces of bone. The boys were excited and continued to pull out everything they could reach before going and finding Thompson and Barnhill to show them their treasure. Thank goodness children are so curious. As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, recess mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water, it's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon, letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with Foul Play. And for the devoted Foul Play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This was it. He knew it. They all returned to the house immediately. The entire neighborhood had heard what had happened and were all there. They didn't want to miss anything. This is the scene in Geyer's own words. We proceeded to the cellar, and with the hammer and chisel, I took down the lower part of the chimney. I then took an old fly screen, which I found in the house, and used it as a sieve, and as the ashes and soot were taken from the chimney... I passed it through the screen and found an almost complete set of teeth and a piece of the jaw, which I turned over to Dr. John Quinney Bryant, a dentist for examination. At the bottom of the chimney was found a large charred mass, which upon being cut, disclosed a portion of the stomach, liver, and spleen baked quite hard. The pelvis of the body was also found. All this was handed to Dr. Barnhill for examination. They also found the following items in the property that were later identified by Carrie Peitzel as belonging to the children. Some buttons, a little spinning top, and tin man that Peitzel had purchased for Howard at the World's Fair, a small scarf pin, and some shoes that belonged to Howard 
a crochet needle that belonged to Alice, some of the iron fastenings from the trunk, a boy's coat matching Howard's, in the possession of a local grocer, a man called in at his store and left the coat with him, saying that a boy would call for it the next morning, but the boy never came. The relief washed over Geyer. He was elated. He had found the remains of little Howard Peitzel. In his book, he writes, That night I enjoyed the best night's sleep I had had in two months. I was sure that my work was complete, and I fell into an easy slumber. I thought that, after all, the business of searching for the truth was not the meanest occupation of man. It is the manner in which it is searched for that sometimes makes it noble. Herman Webster Mudgett, alias H. H. Holmes, was indicted in September 1895 for the murder of Benjamin F. Peitzel. On September 2, 1894, Holmes pleaded not guilty. His trial date was set for Monday, October 28, 1895. Holmes and his counsel tried lots of underhand and willy tactics to delay the start date of the trial, but the judge was adamant, and the trial began. There were 35 out-of-state witnesses who all attended and confirmed how they had met Holmes, that they had seen him with the children, as well as many local witnesses too. On day two, Carrie Peitzel was called to the witness stand. As she testified, Geyer wrote, When the entire audience was dissolved in tears at the pitiful, heartbreaking narrative of Miss Peitzel, the prisoner sat unmoved in the dock, scribbling notes and occasionally glancing at the woman whose husband and children he had so cruelly murdered. Holmes's own defense scored some points for the prosecution during the trial, highlighting contradicting evidence presented by Holmes. For example, Holmes said that he had seen Peitzel alive in various locations, numerous times since September 2, 1894. Yet previously he said in a statement that he had found Peitzel dead at number 1316 Callaway Hill Street on September 2, 1894, and that he had committed suicide. Three physicians were called to the stand. One who was an expert in toxicology said that Peitzel had died from chloroform poisoning, and therefore it was not possible that it was suicide. In Geyer's own words, his presence at the house at the time of his death, his concealment of the death, both from the authorities and from Miss Peitzel, the proof that the man had not died from chloroform self-administered, his robbery of Miss Peitzel, and the insurance swindle, mingled with his audacious fabrications, made up one of the strongest cases of circumstantial evidence ever presented in a criminal court. And when the jury returned a verdict of murder in the first degree, in the language of Mr. Samuels, justice cried amen to the verdict. And the people and press poured in their congratulations upon the district attorney and his assistant, and the able and faithful detective, Mr. Geyer, whose noble work revealed the bloody tracks of a human monster, whose life we hope to never see again. In the preface to the book written by Geyer, he says, the reader will echo the remarks of the learned judge, who, in charging the jury that convicted Holmes, said, Truth is stranger than fiction, and if Miss Peitzel's story is true, and it was proven to be true, 
It is the most wonderful exhibition of the power of mind over mind I have ever seen, and stranger than any novel I have ever read.'" 